it's time to hit the brakes. Welcome to Swerve South. Hey, y'all. Welcome to another episode of Swerve South. I'm Jamie Harker. I'm the director of the Sarah Isom Center, and I'm here with my co-pilot, Teresa Starkey. Uh, I'm the associate director of the ISM Center. See, I remembered to say that. I always forget to uh, address. <laughs> well done, address Dr. My, Starkey. Address my role. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Way to go, brain. You got it. <laughs> so today we thought it would be fun to talk about the Eurovision movie that was dropped on Netflix during the pandemic. Um, we had written down the formal title, which I'm not sure I can come up with. Do you have it in front of you, T? Hold on, Eurovision Song Contest. Eurovision Song Contest. The story of Fire Saga. Fire Saga. All right. So this is something I find so interesting in terms of cultural differences. When you think about how much pop culture is worldwide, how much American pop culture goes elsewhere, how many European bands, how much European pop culture has come to the U.S., for whatever reason, Eurovision has never left the pond, right? And become a big thing in the United States, even though it's huge everywhere else, right? I mean, people are like, it's not even Europe, right? But they're super into it in Australia. And Australia got permission to be part of Eurovision, right? You've got all these different spaces watching it. So part of what's funny to me about this movie is it's very difficult to parody something that is already so campy and self-parodying that it, like watching it just cracks you up. And so in some ways they just took a lot of real life things from Eurovision and turned them into one of these uh, Will Ferrell spoofs. Um, but let's, before we jump into the movie, take a little mini trip down memory lane and talk about when we first heard of Eurovision. T, do you know? Uh, you know, I, I had, uh, Eurovision had always been in the back of my, my mind and I had, I had encountered it when I was living overseas and it would come on at, late at night where I was and I would end up watching it. But I, so pause, me, tell us more Egypt, right? When you yeah, were in Egypt, yeah, yeah, I was living, yeah, I was living there um, and it would come on. And so I, I can remember like watching the bands and the music and it was a great um, thing to see because I would stay up late to be able to see it in the same way that I would stay up when I was in the States and I would watch um, like night tracks. I think that might be like the name of the show, but it was like a late night video show, music videos. Right. But whereas the other show, right. is like these like live performances. Um, but I, I loved it because it reminded me of things that were already sort of familiar to me in the sense of like wearing like the pantsuit, right. Or the dancing and the choreography, it kind of made me think of like solid gold, even though in that, con in those contexts, right. It's like, absolutely. It's like, the solid gold dancers. I haven't thought of them forever. Right. I, I, I bet I, that I, was a ripoff. Right. Well, I'm not, no, exactly. Right. So I'm saying that there were, there were these parallels to me in the, the way that they were, uh, I was making associations in my mind, but yes, you know, solid gold. I wanted to be right. A solid gold dancer. Um, yeah, and wear one of those tight-fitting, like, pantsuits. <laughs> yeah, what does it mean? Like, this is what I'm saying. You're like, what is it, 70s, 80s, you're in Egypt? Like, Eurovision is big in Egypt, but it still has not caught on the United States. It's one of those weird things that just has not translated culturally to the U.S., despite all the other stuff that's going on. And I'm always interested in these pop culture phenomenon 
that are beyond our kind of ra- off the radar. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about this in terms of Bollywood too. Like I never really got into Bollywood until I had a grad student who rented all the Bollywood movies from the library because they were too poor to go to movies. And she's the one who got me interested in it. And, but it's huge all the way across the Middle East and in India and in Asia. And we just sort of occasionally come into them. So Eurovision, I think the first time I can remember being aware of Eurovision was our own operations coordinator, Kevin Cozart, who was showing me a video of Conchita Wurst, um, who was one of the winners of Eurovision um, and, and was this kind of drag queen with a perfectly trimmed beard. So everything else was like in this illusion of perfect normative feminine gender, except for the beard. Um, and it was so interesting to watch. And I, and I don't remember if that was before or after I went to a conference in Copenhagen and all the all of my grad students' friends were talking about the upcoming Eurovision contest. I think that happened around simultaneously. But I never really thought about Eurovision. I don't think it, it even entered my consciousness until that moment. This is like 2014, 2015. Um, though, of course, it bubbles up everywhere. But we should have known. Do you know why? ABBA. No, that's right. I know you. This was something you were. Uh, Kevin just texted right this, that that ABBA was launched on Eurovision. So, uh-huh. which makes this which, is what which I mean. We all just knew about ABBA. And we were like, I remember when I was a big Beatles fan, I would always be outraged when people would say that ABBA was more popular than the Beatles. How dare you say such a thing, right? ABBA was this weird band that was popular here, but nobody remembered. I don't remember anyone ever saying they got their launch on Eurovision. I didn't really know what it was, but you can go now and check out their their winning performance on Eurovision. And it's kind of delightful in the way it comes together. Oh, well, see, see, you're just bringing all these things, you know, uh, this crystallization in my mind in this moment. So, at, at, so if we have ABBA, I also think of another um, band that influenced me. I'm thinking of the Bee Gees, right? And I, I, for some reason, I'm like, what is it about these musicians that were wearing these like tight, you yes. know, white, these pantsuits? <laughs> Wait, were the Bee Gees? Were the Bee Gees ever in Eurovision? Can we I find this out? I don't know. But, I, but to me, I'm like, to me, that would make sense if they were. They seem like if they weren't, they seem like a Eurovision band, yeah. right? So, but weren't they so, Australian? Right? Yeah, so they could have been. They could have been on Eurovision. This could be the truth. So I'm actually laughing. There's like a whole, like, we're talking about, like, the deep state right now. The deep state of pop culture could be Eurovision in America. Like, there's been this secret source that has infiltrated and popped up, but we didn't know it all came. The prime mover was Eurovision. Oh, yeah. I love it. So it's, here's, here's the thing that I think is puzzling to most American viewers of Eurovision who haven't seen it before is that it's, it seems so schlocky, you know? I mean, it's like the outfits and the performances, the songs, like the kind, it's, it's, it feels like um, a, a more professional version of like somebody's talent show, you know, or <laughs> show if you went to those, like someone doing lip syncs. I mean, it, but it, it's at a huge stage, massive amounts of people, lots of, you know, technology often, um, but it just seems so, so kind of out there, like watching a permanent Vegas show. Well, um, it's with over Wayne the, Newton. It, well, it's over the top, right? That's and and I think it's it's over the top, and it's about it's also excess, right? And it's spectacle. So it's it's all of these um, of these things. Absolutely, and I think even though we have that in like subcultures, we've never really done a good job. American pop culture mainstream has been more earnest. Whenever they try to translate these sort of like campy or complicated or excessive 
um, European or English shows, they just flop. I'm thinking about AbFab, you know, if you didn't watch Absolutely Fabulous, speaking of like the queer 90s, which was this great um, English television show about these sort of like really bad behaving 60s radicals who are now like in their in their 50s and 60s doing all kinds of things. When they tried to do the American version, it was it didn't even last, I think, four episodes because they could not capture the kind of like over the top bad behavior. I mean, they, they said later that that was based on Bananarama and how Bananarama used to act uh, when they would cruise around and go to parties. <laughs> but I think that may be part of it. And uh, then there's my favorite story that I'd heard. If you've ever seen this, you've got Patsy, right? I, mean, I wouldn't go down the AbFab rabbit hole because it's too great. We might have to do a whole show just on AbFab. But I can't um, even believe this out. didn't come up in our last conversation, Jamie. See, there's so many there things that we you missed, know why? right? Because we need to have a whole conversation just on AbFab and Jennifer Saunders. All right. It's, it's on the agenda. Check. It's coming. All right. So let's talk about this. So this is this really interesting, wild thing. So here's this, this talk about the movie. Now, Will Ferrell has made a career out of doing odd, over-the-top, or funny spoofs of different kinds of phenomena. Um, and again, you get to Eurovision and you think, Eurovision is so crazy over-the-top. Anyway, what do you do? Most Honestly, most of the stuff they do, the acts, the performances are drawn from real Eurovision events. Did you know this? There was a great article about this. I'm doing spoiler alert, everyone. I'm going to tell you about this show. So it's this, it starts with young Will Ferrell, who's just lost his mother, seeing ABBA on Eurovision. And that gives him a will to live and a purpose. And he decides that he is one day going to win Eurovision. Um, and they all laugh at him and don't believe him. And he makes his life around this. And so he's this sort of loser dude who's playing in the one, there's only one bar and there's only one rock, you know, cover band that's his that does not very good shows, but they're convinced they're going to do Eurovision and they're imagining this huge expansive, the dresses Vikings in the opening scene, but really they're just in the basement with like foil hats. You know I mean? Quite literally doing all that, but they're imagining this big moment they're going to have. And through strange circumstances of fate where someone doesn't want them to have to pay for Eurovision. So they want to put someone up who will never possibly win he and the woman who loves him, but he can't see that because he's just thinking about Eurovision get to go to Eurovision and everyone's sure it's going to be a huge embarrassment for Iceland. Um, and in the process, you get to meet all of these other characters. Um, I'll pause for a minute because I don't want to get way too much of the show, but what's fun is all the cameos in this and then all the characters who are based on actual winners of Eurovision is part of the fun of this whole show. So T. What did you think? Talk to me about things in the movie that really struck you. Oh, well, no, as I said, for me, it's just, I love all of that, um, that, that the choreography, the over the top, the excess, the sets, right. The costumes, um, as I said, for me, it just resonates with like these other like cultural moments that of desire that I would love to be on that Eurovision stage. Right. Like I can, I can appreciate, um, that. So, but I, I, that's what I enjoyed, right? I enjoyed actually seeing sort of the cameos and the performances. And as you said, the idea that when it opens, you think that you're watching, right, this, this music video, but it's actually just their fantasy of how they imagine themselves, right? And they're actually right. performing, like, you know, in his room and with like the Casio keyboard and things like that. So, but I think it's, I think in that moment, I think we've all been there, right? In these different moments, um, or, or maybe it's just me. I don't know. But where we imagine ourselves of being right that star or singing that song um, or being in Absolutely. that video. 
Uh, so Those yeah, of us who, yeah. like me who love music but really don't have any musical talent, which to speak of, like, in your mind, you are, it sounds so great. No, that's right. In reality, right. That's people right. are covering their ears because you can't carry a tune, you know? I mean, I no, that's when I exactly. I'd be singing it's, and my mother, who was a really good musician, would say for the next room, you just changed keys. You know, it's like it was hurting her ears. I'm like, what? I sound really good. Yeah, uh, the idea, like I said, it's all about fantasy and desire and projection. <laughs> It is, and it's fun though. But one of one of my favorite characters from this, so they they get. I love that it's in Edinburgh, which has never been in Edinburgh, right? So it's in Scotland, and she meets this Russian star who's got like a a tiger in it. He's like wearing all, speaking of jumpsuits, like it's all the somebody's like skin tight jumpsuits with sequins and lots of lights, and you come out there, and there's all these like barely dressed boys, like you know, young men dr- dancing in these provocative ways. It's very queer, right? The whole thing is. is like coded in this like campy queer way. And yet he he's like, I'm Russian, I cannot be gay, right? So like everyone sort of is talking around this and his whole aesthetic is very campy gay, but he has to somehow woo and be seen with a young woman so that he can pass. And it's really interesting in something that's this campy. And like the whole thing is like one of the gayest things I've ever seen in my life, which was so fabulous about Eurovision. They're kind of playing with that idea that despite the fact that it's super queer, it's also in denial in some ways, or it's sort of covering up a lot of a lot of that culture as if it's not that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's a sort of performance and unspeakability. And again, if you read Eve Sedgwick, you know exactly what's going on here, right? Which is this sort of like the shift between the homoerotic and the homosocial and how you can never acknowledge that it's crossed over from this sort of homosociality to eroticism, even though it's there always the entire time. Right. Well, yeah, as you're saying, there are sort of these silences, right? These omissions. Um, yeah, he's a, that's, yeah, he's, that's, he's a, he's a great character. And even thinking about, even before they, as you say, it's also anchored it right in the romance, um, the narrative where they're going to discover, you know, the, the themselves and also write the relationship eventually that's part of the narrative arc, but also just the idea of what it means. Like at first and foremost, they're being like having like this friendship together and this sort of shared kind of fantasy, and one of the moments that I like, and this is just a segue, right, is where they they, they have this little uh, thing where they say to each other, are you looking at me? Are you checking me out? Are you looking at me? <laughs> and of course, they're playing with like all the accents and like, all, I mean, like everything about it is is really over the top. My favorite scene, well, I have two, but my one favorite scene is when they have the sing-along at the party for all the Eurovision contestants. And they bring in all these previous winners like Conchita Verse and others oh, that, yes. who are singing along and jumping in. And it is like this very kind of weirdly wholesome sing-along slash drag show at the same time that they come through. That whole scene alone is worth watching. Um, the other that I think is so interesting is, and again, plot spoiler, there's this whole weird subtext that's running through where the the female pair of the duo um, is really into these, what are they called? They're trolls. Like they're, they're, there's a place no, where you that's can bring, right. <laughs> that you can bring, like, it's like this weird thing in Iceland. They believe in these mystical spirits, these mythical creatures. And there's a little mini you know, house that's been built for them. And she brings them offerings to ask for their good luck. Um, and so he has gone back and because they have a fiasco, which also was based on a real accident at Eurovision, by the way, where the wheel goes running and everything smashes up in their attempt to do all of this. And he is making an offering and then the nefarious villain who's trying to ruin it comes to try to assassinate him. And just as he's about to stab our Will Ferrell, he falls over 
and you see this great, beautifully sequenced moment when he comes over, looks at his back, pulls out the smallest knife out of his back that you've ever imagined. And then suddenly you hear a door slam and one of the trolls has come out to save him. And it's like, you spent an hour and a half going, why do we keep talking about the trolls just for that joke, right? That comes through there, which made me laugh for about 10 minutes when I saw it because it was so oh, no, unexpected. Well, but, was- but, but in that moment, Jamie, he also becomes a believer, right? Do you know what yes. I mean? So okay. He, he's dismissed her, but in that moment, right, he's 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 in her belief system now. <laughs> that is a perfect segue, because here's the thing that's so funny. And I love this movie, but it's interesting. For me, it's all about excess and camp and all these things that are, you know, over the top and, and this, like, artificiality performance. If you've read Judith Butler on drag, you know what I'm talking about, right? This idea that it's about no authenticity. It's all just about performance. In the end, this movie actually comes back to sincerity and belief and loyalty, right? In a really fundamental way. Because this funny, weird love she has for the trolls turns out to be true, right? It turns out to save him. Uh, And he has to come and claim love. And in that final scene, instead of playing their over-the-top performance, she brings out this beautifully earnest song about Iceland and going back home that is totally shorn of all of these pyrotechnics, right? She refuses the dancers. She refuses the sequins and the light show. It's just her singing at the piano. And by changing the song, they're going to be, you know, kicked at, disqualified. And yet that becomes the most moving performance of it all, right? Where she sings in Icelandic and everyone at home is proud of her. And it becomes like this moment of rejecting the excess, and the camp for this kind of sincere moment of love that then they, they know they love each other. They go back home. And it's really interesting that that becomes the resolution of a movie that is all about camp performance. And yet in the end, they're just back playing in their same band in the same place, the same song. They make him sing 20 times every night. Only now Will Feller has a baby and a little carrier in front, but like everything else is the same in their lives. And I find it really interesting that like, as much as this is making fun of sincerity and authenticity, it's hard not to be moved by that moment in, in the film. Like they do a really good job of setting it up so that you're ready for that, even though you've been laughing at the very notion of sincerity and authenticity for most of the movie. Well, there's that. Well, what's happened is it's also that journey film, right? Not only is it, like, as I said, there's all these different like kind of arcs that are working their way through the film, but they actually return home. And as you say, there's that moment of sincerity where they're actually embraced, right, by the community, yes. which they haven't been. Right. And so suddenly now they're they're sort of reintegrated into it. Right. Through this process, so, yeah. journey of Eurovision. Right. It's, it's become a transformative right process for them. Which in a weird way, I think, is the thing about Eurovision that's Eurovision that's true. That's hard for Americans to get. It is both completely artificial, ridiculous, schlocky and all about camp. And yet there's still a belief in those sincerity performances. Like people are still willing to embrace that stuff and love it, even though it's got all this stuff around it. And I think in that way, it maybe is true as to your vision that people can get really enamored of these performers, even as they're out there in their like sequined outfits with the tigers and like the boy toy dancers, like in the loincloths, you know, but they're, they're somehow still moved by it. And that ability to hold both those things at once, schlock excess overload and sincere, like romantic trope connection is one of the things that I think your vision is, mystifying and still really fun yeah well i also think there's this idea this uh, as we're thinking about this right this is totally like you know uh stream of conscious but 
but there's this in, if you're talking about sincerity you're also we're talking about this investment into into communities right different communities yes and what it means a national identity and, and right? national identity and what it means to be right to be the audience right and to embrace or to champion do you know so all of these things are going on um yeah. But you're not allowed to vote for your own country. So, you know, unlike, say, the Olympics, when, like, they would always be, like, voting for themselves and trashing their countries, you have to vote for someone else, which is what saves Iceland in the first round after the debacle of their performances. They all kind of pick them because they like their pluck, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's interesting, too, as part of this. If you're trying to kind of capture what it is about Eurovision that has this resonance, this movie is not a bad place to start, I think, for American audiences. If we're lucky, we'll get to watch the whole week of performances and, and competition in the future. Cross your fingers, T. Okay, done. <laughs> All right. I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you, Teresa. Thanks, Jamie. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next time on Swerve South. Swerve South.